0: substance that actually has some truth something that's real and unfortunately for humanity many times our worship of God is just that it is a show with no substance and so we need to come to God's word this morning we need to ask him to show us and to enable us to truly worship him this morning this is one of the main reasons that uh, many people in my generation, we've seen a large exodus of people from the church. People have grown tired of seeing Christians say one thing and then live a completely different way, right? We've been accused of being hypocrites. People are tired of seeing people talk the talk but not walk the walk, and people are tired of, 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 of seeing uh, uh, lives that are not consistent with what they claim to be true, And it's not that people don't want to see fruit and growth in their own life. But I'd contend with you this morning, it's because many times our worship is a show with no substance. And listen, there is a rightful discontentment we should have and a frustration we, we should have with worship that is for show and has no substance. Jesus had this same frustration with his people when he quoted the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15, verse 8, and he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And oh church, may that not be said of us. And this is what we prayed for those that gathered at 945 to pray for our gathering. We prayed that we would not be a people that just honors God with our lips, but that we would delight in him with our hearts, that our hearts would be close to him. But listen, walking away completely from the worship of God just because we're frustrated of a show with no substance, that's not the right response. Instead, we need to go to Jesus to see what true worship looks like, and we need to ask the Spirit to enable us to truly worship Him. And then before we jump in, okay, I need to preface this as well. This is one of those messages that I think we can be tempted to hear, and we first think of another church— Or another Christian that maybe needs to hear this more than us? And no way, church. No way. I'm not letting you guys off the hook with that kind of thinking this morning. I believe God called me to preach this message to this church, to our people. We need to hear this. You need to hear this. Is your worship just a show with no substance? Or are you experiencing the fruit of true worship? Let's, let's pray and let's ask God to do something great this morning. Father God, we do come before your word, uh, Lord, knowing that in it there is the power to transform us, to change us. Uh, God, we know that this word is living and active. And so we ask that you would speak truth to us today. I ask for myself that I would not get in the way, uh, Lord, of, of what you are wanting to, to teach us this morning. I ask that you'd give us hearts to receive your word. I ask that you would convict those that need to be convicted and encourage those that need to be encouraged. And may we ultimately um, taste and see that you are good. Help us treasure you and exalt you above all else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you got Bibles, be uh, look at Mark eleven verse twelve, and we are we are picking up the story of Jesus, who is now in Jerusalem. It's Passover week. It's the last week of his earthly ministry, leading up to his uh, death and resurrection. And last week we saw him enter the city on a donkey, uh, fulfilling many of the Old Testament prophecies that the the Savior King would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. We saw the glory of God. Remember, return to the temple because in jesus christ the glory of god has drawn near he he ends his uh his uh, triumphal entry on the donkey at the temple he looks around he sees what needs to be done and then he goes back to bethany which is a couple miles outside of jerusalem to sleep and now we pick it up in verse 12 mark 11 verse 12 it says on the following day when they came from bethany he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now this is one of the most controversial miracles that Jesus performs, primarily because it's the only destructive miracle That we see recorded in the Gospels. I mean, usually, right, Jesus is healing, he's restoring, he's raising back to life. uh, But on this occasion, he curses. And we see later in the passage that this tree, this fig tree, dies. And so even at first read, this can seem a little weird to us, right? It can maybe even seem a little petty or a little vindictive, right? I mean, it can seem like this is you going to a restaurant and and ordering something off the menu, and the waiter or waitress tells you that they're all out of it or they don't have it, they can't make it. And it's you standing up and saying, you know, may this restaurant never serve any food ever again. Now, if you do things like that, right, if that's you, like if you could picture yourself doing that, uh, you probably need to repent of some sin. You need to go apologize to some waiters and waitresses. And as you are working through your issues, I would ask that you would not wear the church t-shirt out and about when you go out to eat. But look, that's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. We know enough about the nature and character of Jesus to know that that is not what is happening here. What we are seeing is really a fig tree sandwich by John Mark, the writer of this gospel, okay? All right, he sandwiches the story of the fig tree uh, with Jesus cleansing the temple, all right? And he does this for a reason, because you see, in the Old Testament, a fig tree often served as a metaphor for Israel and its standing before God. And you see, Jesus is using an illustration, a real-life illustration, like he often does to help teach his disciples. He's trying to show them that this fruitless fig tree represents a fruitless Israel and a fruitless temple, a fruitless religion, a fruitless worship. Now, you might say, hey, Grant, Mark says that it was not the season for figs. So how in the world is it fair for Jesus to curse a fig tree that hasn't produced fruit, even though Passover week, it's not the season for figs? Now, if you were asking that question, I applaud you for being that engaged in the text. That is great, all right? But listen, let's explain this a little bit, okay? In that region, fig trees bore two kinds of fruit. And we have a picture up here of a fig tree, what a fig tree would look like in that In that region, okay? And while the main fig tree fruit didn't appear till later in the year, there would be in the spring, during this Passover season, uh, there would be these little nodules or immature figs that would be good to eat. And they're called uh, pagum or they're called green figs. You can see a slide there. And many travelers, they enjoyed picking these as they traveled. They were good to eat. They weren't the main fig fruit that would appear later on, but they were still good for nourishment, and and travelers would pick them as they ate. And so in the springtime, if you found a tree that had leaves, right? If you go back to the other slide, Andrew, if you found a fig tree that had leaves, but it didn't have these little pagum, these little green figs, then you knew something was wrong with that tree. And that is likely what is happening here. Jesus sees this tree. He sees that it has leaves. It should have these little green figs on them. It looks great from a distance, but as he approaches, he sees there's there's no little green figs, meaning it was likely dying on the inside. He sees the tree. It looks good from a distance, but as he approaches, there is no fruit. And this is sadly the state of the temple and of the people's worship of God. It looked good from a distance, but as Jesus approaches closer, he sees no fruit. And sadly, this is the state of many people who call themselves Christians. They do their best to appear religious and to look good to other people they maybe go to church they read their bible they instagram their quiet times they go to bible study they serve the community they give their money they look really good from a distance but they're dying on the inside listen church true worship true worship And that's the title of the sermon this morning, True Worship. True worship is not done for appearances. True worship is not done for appearances. True worship does not just look good. It produces good. True worship of God will produce fruit in the life of the worshiper. Let me say that one again. True worship of God will produce fruit in the life of the worshiper. John fifteen sixteen, which we'll have up on the screen, Jesus speaking. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and look impressive. No, that's not what it says. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and look good to other people, that you should go and appear uh, religious to other people. No, he says you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Jesus does not call us to worship in order to appear good. He doesn't call us to put on a good show for our Christian friends. He calls us to go and produce good to bear fruit true worship produces fruit in the life of the worshiper well okay you might be saying okay true worship produces fruit in the life of the worshiper maybe you're on board with that but what kind of fruit are we talking here what does the fruit look like you might be saying, I'm on board with that. You know, worship cannot be just for show. There has to be substance to it. But what does the substance look like? What sort of fruit does it produce? Well, let's, let's see what we can learn when Jesus enters into the fruitless temple. Look at verse 15 of Mark 11:15. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, what's happening here? Jesus and his disciples, they enter Jerusalem. He enters the temple. Now, to give you a picture of what the temple was like, here is a model of the temple. Okay, uh, the the middle part was kind of the main temple part But the area that jesus would have been in where the money changers and those selling animals would have been in It's called the court of the gentiles. All right. It's the court of the gentiles now that court of the gentiles was a huge area Okay, it was prox- approximately five football fields long and three football fields wide. Okay, 500 yards by 300 yards. That is a large area. Okay, so when you're picturing Jesus doing this, think, I mean, he's in this large area. It's not like dad clearing out the lobby at the gear, right? This is like a, a huge Area Right. And during Passover, people would travel from all over to the temple to make sacrifices. The historian uh, Josephus uh, recorded that in an average Passover week, approximately 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed at the temple. 250,000. I mean, can you imagine in order to sacrifice 250,000 lambs? I mean, that is a big ordeal. That is a massive amount of people coming into the temple. That is a big operation during Passover week. And this was a big money-making opportunity for the religious leaders of the temple as well. Because, you see, you could travel with your own animal to sacrifice, but if a priest looked at it and said it was not acceptable, if there was any spot or blemish, uh, which they often would, then you would have to buy one of the temple-approved animals. And some historians estimate they would charge 16 times the normal price for a temple-approved animal. And then you had money changers who would exchange foreign currency and, of course, charge a fee for this as well. You had people selling pigeons and doves, which were sold. They were the sacrifices for the poor, those who could not afford a lamb. And Jesus sees this, and he doesn't make a silent protest. He doesn't just shake his head in disappointment. I mean, he starts flipping tables and chairs And running and driving these salespeople and animals out of the temple. Now listen, I know many of you have heard this story before. But I want to point out something that maybe you haven't thought about before. Jesus is not righteously angry just because of what they were doing. Selling animals to sacrifice and making money off of it. He certainly was. But he also reacted the way he did because of where they were doing it. This was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was to be a place where the nations could come to pray and seek God. Gentiles weren't allowed in any other part of the temple. They were just allowed in that court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed in any of the inner parts. And so the place that they had, that we all would have had, it had been turned into a marketplace. And and here's where Jesus completely flips people's expectations upside down because the Jewish people at that time, they falsely thought that the Messiah, when he would come, that he would drive out the foreigners and Gentiles out of the temple and out of Jerusalem, right? But don't miss what Jesus is doing. He's not clearing Gentiles out of the temple. He's clearing out the temple for the Gentiles. He quotes Isaiah 56 and he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, all nations. Not nation singular all nations. And this is good news for us, church, right? I mean, all all the Gentiles in the room can say, praise God. Praise God. That's right. Jesus sees the fruitless temple. It looks good from a distance, but now he's up close. He sees no fruit, and he sees people using worship and religion to prop up themselves for selfish gain. When true worship True worship is supposed to exalt God above all else. But people were using worship to exalt themselves for profit. And in doing so, they were hindering the nations from coming to pray and to seek the Lord. Jesus sees a show with no substance And this show with no substance, not only are people profiting from it and taking advantage of one another, but this show with no substance is actually hindering people from coming to God. It's hindering people from coming to God. And just like Jesus curses the fig tree that will eventually die, so this is him cursing the temple. He knows that he has come to be the fulfillment of the temple, the true and better temple, the once and for all decisive sacrifice for the sins of his people. And so this is him cursing the temple. And it will be in the year A.D. 70 that the Roman general Titus, unknowingly being a part of God's plan, will destroy this temple. And there has not been a temple in Jerusalem since. But thanks be to God that when Jesus offered up his life on the cross as the sacrificial spotless lamb, he made the payment for sin that the holiness of God required. The temple curtain that separated the holy of holies with the people was torn in two. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he, would, he said that he would send his spirit not to dwell inside a physical building, but now to dwell inside his people. And so now we don't have to go to a physical temple to get close to the presence of God. And Paul described this to the church in Corinth when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that now you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And when Jesus enters your life and calls you to turn from sin and to trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins, we can sometimes wrongly assume that He has cleansed us in order to put us on display, right? Like a lot, isn't this what a lot of fruitless worship looks like, right? People have been forgiven of their sin. We assume that Jesus cleansed us to put us on display, like like that fine china that we like to show off. Like look how nice and sparkly and clean and perfect that is up on the shelf. And so people spend a lot of time fruitlessly worshiping, trying to keep their appearance looking good and clean to others. Like no need to pray or do any of the heart-changing things. You really can't show that off to people. But I'll work on things that appear well to other people on the outside, like attending church and going to small group and doing things that people can publicly notice what I'm doing so that I appear good to them. And so if your motivation for worship is that you want to appear like a healthy fig tree, you want to appear like the shiniest glass among the fine dinnerware, but you're not really concerned about what's happening on the inside of you, in your heart. You just want to worship to exalt yourself, to promote yourself. To have the appearance of Christ likeness. Your lips praise him because that's what people can see and hear, but your heart is the farthest it's ever been from him. And oh church, that's not why Jesus cleansed you. That's not true worship. That's not why Jesus forgave you. That's a show with no substance. You are not the fine china he cleans up to put on display to exalt you. You are more like the coffee mug that I clean. Now let me explain. I work uh, two jobs and I have a young family, and so coffee is a really big part of my life. Coffee mugs do not go unused uh, very long in our house. When I clean a coffee mug, I fully intend to fill that mug with some caffeinated goodness very soon. I'm not just cleaning it to just display it. I'm not just cleaning it to make it just kind of look good on the outside. I'm cleaning it because I know I'm going to use it. I'm going to fill it with something very soon. I cleanse it to fill it, not display it. In Christ, you were cleansed and forgiven in order to be filled with the Spirit of the living God, so that you would be enabled to treasure and exalt Christ above all else. Let me say that again. In Christ, you were cleansed and forgiven in order to be filled with the Spirit of the living God so that you would be enabled and, and, uh, to treasure and exalt Christ above all else. You were cleansed to be the temple of God. And you have been now commissioned to be a light to the nations, not to promote yourself, but so that the nations would exalt Jesus when you're around your friends and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers, the temple of God, the glory of God, the presence of God is drawing near to those people in through Christ in you. And it's not to exalt you, You've been forgiven and filled not to promote yourself, but instead to exalt Jesus to the nations. True worshipers are filled with the Spirit. And if filled with the Spirit, you can also expect to see some fruit of the Spirit in a true worshiper's life. Let me remind you from Galatians 5 what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you experiencing this kind of fruit in your life? Are you seeing these things starting to grow? Maybe not perfectly, but are you seeing love and joy and peace and patience And kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self control slowly growing in your life? Are you growing in your desire to exalt Christ more than to exalt and promote yourself? Are you growing in your desire to pray? The temple is to be a house of prayer. Prayer. Are you growing in your desire to see the nations come to know and exalt Christ? Maybe you're not. Maybe you don't know how to truly worship. Maybe you don't know how to stop putting on a show with no substance. Look back at the text as Mark completes this fig tree sandwich, and we'll see what Jesus teaches his disciples Picking it up in verse 20, Mark 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Here, once again, we see the power of Jesus. Right? We've seen him command the wind and the waves to cease. And now here again, the fig tree, we see creation submitting to its creator. Don't miss the power and the authority of Jesus in this passage. We're going to go into that deeper next week. And then, and then look what Jesus tells them in verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, Jesus is not telling his disciples that if they have faith in God, uh, that they will literally move mountains into the sea. Now, certainly that is within the power of God, if he so choose, you know, chose to do that. But you see, in Jewish literature, moving a mountain was a metaphor for doing the impossible. Rabbis spoke often of moving mountains and they're referring to doing the impossible. And so Jesus is telling his disciples that through faith, the impossible is now possible. Through faith, the impossible is now possible. The unrighteous through faith are made righteous. The enemy of God through faith is made a friend of God. That's the impossible becoming possible. The sinner through faith is made a saint. The unclean through faith is cleansed and made a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the questions that we have to answer is how how do you truly worship in such a way that produces fruit? How do you worship in such a way that's not just a show, but there is substance, it has substance to it? And listen, true worship has to be through faith in God, not through faith in ourselves. True worship has to be through faith in God, not through faith in ourselves. And Jesus says that even just the tiniest bit of faith can make the impossible possible. He says in Matthew 17, verse 20, He says, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. How much faith do we have to have? Faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, I want everyone to do uh, a little experiment here so you can picture this. Everyone take your index finger and touch your thumb, okay? You guys with me? Index finger. Thumb. Now, everyone, take your other index finger and touch your thumb. All right. Now, put those four together. Okay. And there's a little space in between. All right. That space is the size of a mustard seed. Okay. That is a mustard seed. You see what some have done with this passage. is they've taken this one passage and they've neglected other passages that talk about prayer and they've promoted some false teaching, and so they've taken this passage to mean that if God, uh, that that God will give them whatever they ask if they have enough faith. But people who have taught this, they've neglected passages like James four three that talks about praying with right motives it says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions and people who teach this false teaching they neglect verses that talk about praying according to God's will like 1 John 5:14 which says and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and what some have done is they have taken this passage out of context and they've developed a name it and claim it theology That if there's something you want and ask God for, if you have enough faith, then you will get it. Or if you give enough money to their ministry, you will get it. And there have been many people that have been sick or ill and they've prayed for healing. For whatever reason, God has chosen not to heal and they've been told that they haven't been healed because they haven't had enough faith. Church, that is false teaching. It is not the size of our faith that has power. It is the object of our faith that has power. Name it and claim it prosperity gospel and any kind of religion or philosophy that promises health and wealth, if you think enough positive thoughts or you believe in yourself enough, all that is is humanity trying to take back control of things. And trying to use God and manipulate God to get what they want. Now listen, it does appeal to humanity because since the beginning, we have wanted to be God. We have wanted to take control of all things. We have wanted to be the sovereign one. However, Jesus says if you want to produce fruit if you want to not just appear good but produce good, then you're going to need to be cleansed of your sin and filled with the Holy Spirit. And you are only cleansed and filled through faith, not faith in yourself, faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And faith is a trust, a reliance, a dependence upon Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins, for the filling of the Spirit, and for the production of fruit in our life. You will not produce fruit by building up faith in yourself. Now, that's the current narrative in our culture, and even in some Christian circles and Christian authors that are out there, that that it is a faith in ourselves that needs to be built up, that we need more positive thinking about ourselves, that we need to believe in ourselves more. But, church, let me tell you, that kind of faith does not produce fruit. It might produce some leaves that look good from a distance but the inside will still be rotten and decaying. Jesus calls you to repent of putting your faith in yourself and instead to put your faith in God. It's not the size of our faith that has power, it's the object of our faith that does. Jesus is not telling us to have more faith in the temple or in our church or in our pastor or in any of the religious activities we do. He's not telling us to have more faith in ourselves. He's telling us to have faith in God. And a faith that is in God and not in self will be able to pray and worship like Jesus prayed and worshiped. Jesus prayed and worshiped uh, in the garden. He said, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. True worshipers, Worship through faith in God, meaning their complete trust, reliance, and dependence is resting on God. God, when we come to worship God, we're saying, God, you are our only hope. You alone have the power to save and to give us life, to change us and transform us. And then look, look another fruit that is produced by true worship. Look back at Mark 11, verse 25, as we're wrapping up. And he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now we don't have time to to go real deep into this, but listen, those who have been forgiven by God through faith in Christ, who are we to not extend to others the forgiveness that we have experienced ourselves? True worshipers are shaken to the core by the amazing grace and forgiveness that they have experienced from God through Jesus, and they are quick to extend that forgiveness to others. Even Stephen, when being stoned, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Well, what about you, church? Church? Has your worship, either corporately or privately, has your worship been a show with no substance? Have you honored God with your lips, but your heart has been far from Him? Is your worship of God mainly for appearances, to look good to others? Or are you experiencing the fruit of true worship? Do you participate in the life of the church or in spiritual practices to promote and exalt yourself? Or have you surrendered self-promotion and embraced that you were cleansed and forgiven in order to be filled with the spirit of the living God so that you would be enabled to treasure and exalt Christ above all else? What about this? Are you growing in your desire to pray? Are you dwelling more and more not on what you have been saved from, but what you have been saved for? Are you growing in your desire to see the nations come to know and exalt Christ? Not just the nation, singular. Are you growing in your desire to see the nations come to know and exalt Christ? Have you repented of putting your faith in yourself and put your faith in God? Have you extended forgiveness to others that Christ has extended to you? These questions, listen, they're not meant to heap guilt on you, but to point you to your need for Christ. And 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our Lord stands ready to forgive you and fill you this morning. And He extends to us through faith the offer to make the impossible possible. And so may we who once worshipped ourselves become true worshipers of God. And may we be a people who not only honor God with our lips, but also may our hearts always be delighting in Him. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray.